Each week, the Bible as Literature podcast brings you in-depth discussion of the biblical text in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. If you value this work, please consider donating as little as 25 cents per episode. That's just $1 per month. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. One of the many ways that Scripture teaches us is by testing us. In the first verse of chapter 15, Mark tells us that the whole council deliberated, bound up Jesus, and delivered him to Pilate. The whole council. During the crucifixion, the public portrayal of Christ's shame is inescapable. Jesus was ridiculed, abused, and finally taunted to come down from the cross. Not only his enemies, but his supposed friends abandoned him. Even those who shared his fate derided him. At that moment, whatever you might say about Jesus, he was neither prominent nor respected by anyone. Then, suddenly, at the end of chapter 15, a member of the same council that delivered him to Pilate, no, not just a member, a prominent member, appears to take him down from the cross. Do you believe your eyes? Do you admire respectable prominence? Are you impressed by what a nice man he is? Yes, this is a test. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you before whose eyes Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified? Richard and I discuss the Gospel of Mark, chapter 15, verses 40 to 47. You're listening to the Bible as literature. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 210 of the Bible as Literature podcast. We are about to embark on the last verses of chapter 15. And I want to caution the reader because here there will be a tendency to conflate different passion narratives. You will hear names like Mary Magdalene, and you will immediately try to bring Mary Magdalene from the other stories of the gospel to the gospel of Mark. Don't do that. It's a mistake. Try to hear these characters in the gospel of Mark as they are presented in this story, or you're going to miss what's going on here. People were troubled by Jesus up on the cross. They wanted him to bring himself down. They wanted Elijah to come. They wanted some fiery chariots. They wanted something to happen, anything but Jesus up there on the cross. It was a shame for them to see their teacher up there on the cross. Once you put the sign above him, the king of the Jews, it's disturbing, it's shameful, it's embarrassing, and hard for the people to take who are related in any way to Jesus. Yet, it was the centurion, 
the outsider, the Gentile, the very specific Gentile function that is accountable for suffering and abuse in Palestine and many other places around the world. It was this one who, through his understanding of the command chain in the Roman army, recognized that Jesus was following orders and recognized from Jesus's actions, from the steps that he took, from his obedience and faithfulness, whose son he was. When the centurion saw him, he said, this is the son of God. The son of somebody in the Roman world means that you pertain to that person. It means you belong to that person. It means you somehow share in that person by sharing in their name. For the centurion to see Jesus obedient to his father's will every step of the way, all the way to the death. That's the only thing that impressed him, first of all. But it also showed that this is the one who pertains to God, to his father alone. In the Roman world, the father said, okay, you are my son, and they would assign you sonship. It was always by adoption. This happened at the beginning of Mark. Exactly. Yes, it happens at the beginning of Mark. It's something we see play out all the way through. Thank you, Father. So here, the Roman father also is just as easily able to kick you out and say you do not pertain to him and to disown you and to disinherit you. So the father determines who is the son and who isn't the son. But who is the one who remains the son? It's the one who remains obedient. And so for the centurion, when he says this is the son of God, this is how he expresses that Jesus was obedient because sonship means that you are obedient. It means that you are faithful to the name that was given to you by your father. In the ancient world, they didn't think about your DNA test or your looks when they thought about parentage. They looked to your behavior. You pertain to so-and-so because you behave the way someone who pertains to that person is known to behave And this is where obedience comes into play because when you are obedient to your father, you act the way your father wants you to act so that the name is recognized by the deed. And in this sense, the sonship of Jesus is demonstrated by the cross. This is how it works. And that's why this gospel was so appealing to Romans because they understood immediately that Jesus was named as the son of the father in the beginning of the gospel. And here he is demonstrating that he truly is, as the centurion confessed, he truly is the son of his father. And just to reiterate what we said last week, he's not the son of God because of fireworks or miracles. It's because of his obedience to what his father told him to do. This is what confirms him as the son. Now, this obedience And the centurion's recognition of the same create the context for what comes next. Because the centurion, who was standing, looking at the portrayal of Christ's shame on the cross, again, drawing upon Paul's teaching in Galatians, the centurion looking upon this shame did not see defeat. The others were ashamed. They were either asking again for Jesus to be taken down from the cross, or they were nowhere to be found. 
There were also some women looking on from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James the Less, and Joses and Salome. Again, you're going to say in your mind, because presumably as a listener of the podcast, you're not new to the Gospels. You're going to say right away that Mary Magdalene is one of the good guys, and that's how you're going to frame this text. Now. We're not saying she's good or bad. We're saying that these people who represent communities—women in Scripture represent communities—these people were standing at a distance, and that is problematic. This isn't about identifying who the good characters are and the bad characters are. People struggle all the time, but so and so is a saint. You mean to tell me that because someone is a saint that they're perfect? You're missing the point. Saint or no saint, these people in verse forty in the Gospel of Mark who represent communities, these people were ashamed and were standing afar off, either ashamed or afraid. Jesus was abandoned by his friends. They didn't stick with him. That's what this means. They didn't stick with him. They weren't there until the end. Just as Peter was right outside, even within sight of Jesus, but he kept his distance because. He was afraid. He was ashamed. Doesn't say exactly what it is, but the fact is, he didn't want to appear to be related to him. Now, the name James is functional. The point is, when you hear James, you hear Jacob, you hear Yakovos, you should hear Israel. That's the key. So it's the people who are closest to the Lord who are the ones who are standing afar off. When he was in Galilee, they used to follow him and minister to him, and there were many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. Note: when he was in Galilee, they used to follow him and minister to him. Why weren't they here now? Well, we know one of the ways that you follow Jesus is you pick up your cross to follow him. You have to be ready to die. You have to be willing to follow him to the very death. As soon as he left Galilee. They didn't follow him. They weren't ready to follow him to the death. That's what this means. They were afraid, but they're afraid for the wrong reasons. They should be afraid because of the implication of the teaching for their lives and how they have to change their ways. They should be amazed in the way that the centurion was amazed, but the fear. And the amazement of the characters throughout the Gospel of Mark is misplaced. They are still afraid of Caesar. They are still worried about their necks. They don't recognize that Jesus defeated Caesar on the cross. Jesus overcame the tyranny of the Caesars on the cross. Jesus undid the damage of Alexander the Great on the cross. Jesus. Did not try to preserve his life in front of Pilate, in front of Caesar, and these people who are standing afar off are trying to preserve their life. They're not following the teaching. This is what's most important. Be amazed at the widow's might. Be afraid at the proclamation of the gospel. Don't be afraid at the chariot, and don't be amazed by large treasuries of gold and impressive miracles. Don't be amazed by miraculous victories. Don't. It's a misreading of Scripture to talk about the Maccabees as though they're the heroes. 
It's incorrect. You have to be like the centurion and be amazed at the trust that Jesus had in his father over everyone else. When evening had already come, because it was the preparation day, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea came, a prominent member of the council, who himself was waiting for the kingdom of God, and he gathered up courage and went in before Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Now, what is he waiting for? The centurion is not waiting. The centurion saw the Son of Man coming in power and he told everyone this man obviously is the son of God the centurion doesn't have to wait because he saw what he needed to see on the cross and he got the message what is Joseph of Arimathea waiting for the kingdom of God is here what does it mean to wait for the kingdom of God when the king is right there in front of you when the king is there reigning the kingdom is there the kingdom comes with the king why would you be waiting for the kingdom unless Maybe you didn't understand that this was actually the king. On the cross, publicly portrayed as crucified, publicly shamed, in fulfillment of Deuteronomy, in fulfillment of the Psalter, not just Psalm 22, but as you pointed out during our conversations this week, Richard, the whole block of Psalms, which deal with the same theme of trust, where we hear about people wagging their head, the shame of the one who does not fulfill the law in Deuteronomy, who is cursed, who has to be put on display so that everyone would see what happens when you don't obey the law or you can't fulfill it. Jesus went through all of that. He fulfilled it to the nth degree, and he demonstrated that you fulfill it by losing. What's left, Joseph? Why, after everyone has been trying to take Jesus down from the cross, Are you now coming in to do what? To take him down from the cross. I mean, people have been wanting Jesus to take himself down from the cross. We had this happen twice. They were hoping he was calling for Elijah so that they could see a fiery chariot. They couldn't stand to see Jesus up there on the cross. They couldn't stand it. They needed him off the cross. They needed him to bring himself down or Elijah to come and bring him down. They couldn't stand to have the stink of the humiliation that Jesus was going through to then stick to them. Pilate wondered if he was dead by this time, and summoning the centurion, he questioned him as to whether he was already dead. So twice in verse 44, you now have people agitating about whether or not he's dead. It's like they're afraid that he's not dead. They want to be sure he's dead. Now, Pilate doesn't care about religion or the Passover. In other Gospels, there's some discussion about the Passover. But here you have the local leader of the Roman powers who's worried about whether or not this guy is surely dead. And he wants to make sure the centurion confirms that he's surely dead. And ascertaining this from the centurion, he granted the body to Joseph. So the Romans have decreed him dead. And now enters Joseph... Joseph bought a linen cloth, took him down, wrapped him in the linen cloth, and laid him in a tomb which had been hewn out in the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. This is deeply problematic. It's deeply problematic. Number one, He took him down from the cross. 
Why? Now, I know in the story, well, he died, Father Mark, they have to take the body down. Yes, but it's literature. Are you listening? All you're telling me is that he had no choice but to take him down. And my response to you is, that's why Paul says we're consigned to sin by the law. He took him down from the cross, he wrapped him up, and he put him in a tomb. Why would you bury him? If you know he's the Son of God and you trust in his teaching, why would you put him in a tomb? And not just a tomb, Richard, but a tomb that was hewn out of the rock. Why would the writer take a moment to point out that it was hewn out of the rock? Because it's an idol. It's made of stone. It's something you create with your own hands. And the very thing you have created with your own hands brings death. It is akin to the temple in Jerusalem locking the Torah up and keeping it for themselves and not sharing it with the nations because it's their protein shake that allows them to feel superior to the Romans. And that way of thinking goes nowhere except back to the dust. So, of course, the thing that they made is a tomb full of dead men's bones. When someone believes that following the teaching is putting trust in the teacher, and that one becomes a son of the teacher by continuing to follow that teaching no matter what happens. Their humiliation is not humiliation, it's honor. For a Roman who goes into battle and follows his general even to his own death, when the general says press on and the troops press on and are killed, this is an honorable death. Jesus presses on when his father says to press on, not because he wants honor, but because he will obey at any cost. And so his crucifixion depicts, demonstrates, displays his obedience. But obedience does not necessarily end up with something positive, as far as humans would say, but that's irrelevant. The only thing that's relevant is that he followed his father's will to the end. So then what would you do if you take this Jesus who is showing to the world that God is more powerful than Caesar as Jesus hangs on the cross, you take him off the cross and hide him underground where no one can see him, no one can find him, because to the world this is disturbing, to the world this is dishonorable, to the world this is embarrassing, so you hide your shame underground. And then you can say, look at the nice tomb I made for Jesus, isn't it pretty? Look at our temple in Jerusalem that Herod built. Isn't it pretty? The house that Herod built. And you can put on the door of the tomb a nice picture of Jesus smiling and Jesus when he was playing soccer with the kids. And you can make up whatever Jesus you want when you put him inside the tomb and put up that door. You can make Jesus into whatever you want. The way that we sweep away anything that's uncomfortable, embarrassing, shameful, or difficult, we sweep it under the rug because it gets in the way of happiness. I'm sorry. It is problematic. The pursuit of happiness is problematic. They should have worded it differently. They should have said the pursuit of community, of the common good. The pursuit of happiness just leads to an endless cycle of consumerism and abuse and anything we can do to hide from the truth which is the suffering of the other when you bury the Torah and the temple in order to lift yourself up at the same time you are stepping on the neck of the weak 
because the only defense of the weak is the very teaching of which you are ashamed. When we try to sweep these things under the rug, when we try to ignore the suffering of others in favor of what's good for us, when we want to be proud of the temple we build, when we want to make it something impressive, when we do this, it is akin to putting a large stone over the entrance so that there's no way that the thing that we are afraid of, the thing that we're trying to hide, the thing that we're trying to lock up, sweep under the rug, there's no way it will get out. And what's truly amazing in Mark, and what should cause fear in the Gospel of Mark, is that in the end, there's nothing you can do to stop Jesus from his mission. And that mission is so important that God the Father will intervene to ensure that the mission continues. So this now is a showdown between those who would lock up the teaching of God and hide it, and God himself who's going to make sure that they can't succeed. They can't succeed now because Jesus has done what none of them could ever do which is accept failure for the sake of the cause. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joses, were looking on to see where he was laid. What will these people do? They saw from afar what happened to Jesus when he was on the cross. They saw from afar when he was put in the tomb. So now the question is, what are they going to do next? They have a decision to make. Are they going to remain faithful in spite of their betrayal that they've shown so far, are they going to have the strength to then be faithful to what they've seen? Of course, we know that when you behold, that's not the important thing. It's the hearing that's the important thing. So in spite of what they see, will they hold fast to the teaching that they heard back in Galilee in order to remain faithful to what Jesus taught them when they were ministering to him? I would really like to encourage our listeners to reflect on this passage and to think about the actions that people take in context of the entire section and to listen carefully to the language. Even in English, it's so clear that they want to make sure he's dead and they want to take him down and they want to lock him away because everything is at risk for those who would place their trust in the temple made with human hands. Everything is at risk because of what Jesus accomplished as the one whom they called king through his defeat. Thanks very much, Dr. Benton. Thank you, Father. You've just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.